What's going on? It's time for another episode of Too Hard for the Radio. Transmitting from the future free state of Greater Idaho, I am the one-armed madman. And with us today, we have the host of the Unconstrained Podcast, Mr. Miles Wakeham. Miles, thanks for coming on, man. How are we doing? We're doing great. We're doing fantastic. Right on. So when I read your profile, I was I, I got to talk to this guy because we've got a lot of similarities. Um, definitely a contrarian my entire life. And you've somehow been very good at it. Me, not all that much. So I'm interested to see how you were able to to use this to your advantage. So uh, why don't you tell us how you grew up and how you got um, to where you're at? Well, I'm Australian, so that's what the accent is. Uh, but I left there when I was 25, so it kind of, I guess I came from a funny era, you know, it was in the era of the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, and it was a different time. And, you know, growing up in a country where there were very few people and a lot of land uh, and most of the stuff that was crawling around on the ground would kill you, um, it kind of hardens you. And so your expectations when you finally get a passport and you leave that country for what the rest of the world is like, it's a bit of a shock because, uh, you know, I kind of felt a bit like Crocodile Dundee. I yeah, was I bet. Los Angeles and, you know, um, but that's kind of where I started uh, in the States. I I worked in the music industry for quite a while. I made my money in my day job, if you like, was uh, technology. I was a software developer and uh, I did pretty well at that. Uh, I thought, you know, life was good. And then, of course, you know, as it happens, life throws all these curveballs at you and you got to learn to deal with them and, one of those was having to go back to Australia to look after my mom who had a car accident. And then eventually she passed away and then I returned back to the States and then um, left the world of Hollywood and the music industry and, and went back into software full time and spent 20 years trying to make a go of that. And, uh, and it worked. Um, I don't say it was, I, I kind of abandoned it. I left it uh, in sometime around maybe the late, 2010s somewhere around there uh i found myself in a situation where i didn't have to work anymore and i didn't agree with what was going on in the consolidation of the tech industry and and a lot of other things and um they're the sort of tales and tribulations that i talk about on my podcast yeah and you've got a unique way of looking at the world um how did how did that i know you started working on computers at an early age how did that uh, you know, lead you into an unconventional upbringing. You, I, uh, you, I saw that you dropped out of high school, which mm-hmm. I really wanted to do as a kid. You know, it, at, at the time I was in high school, GEDs were just kind of starting to do their thing. And my, my parents, God bless them. They were young and kind of ignorant. And at one point I was a motocross racer. So I wanted to drop out or go on homeschool and go race motocross across the country and all that fun stuff. And the school just said, Nope, you can't do it. Sorry. And it was like, well, we tried, you know, <laughs> and, uh, didn't, didn't press it forward. But, um, yeah, for me at, at a young age, I, I realized I was different than everybody else. How did you, how did you figure that out? Well, I didn't actually realize I was different. Um, you know, back in those days, the expectations were uh, not uncommon in my situation. Um, I know my friends, well, they all finished high school. Many of them went to college and some of them got apprenticeships and went into the trades and so on. But 
I look back now um, and it's, God, you know, I hate to say this because they're my friends, but they didn't, went, they didn't end up all that great, you know, and it wasn't because they weren't smart or they didn't have all the opportunities in life. It's just that the system was rigged against them. And my problem was, well, not my problem, my unusual circumstance by not going into the system by finishing high school and then going out and doing it on my own was that I was completely oblivious to what life inside of the bubble looked like because I was always on the outside of it. So it never was, I never had to question what I was doing or feel like I was an outcast because I was always so busy doing what I was doing that I never had time to reflect. It, it wasn't until I got into say the third quarter of my life that I had that chance to look back and realize um you know, like cause and effect. It was like, well, I did this stuff unusual. Well, I, I didn't follow down the systemic path like my friends did. And I came out like a multimillionaire. And I'm like going, <laughs> hang on, Richard Branson did that. He's pretty cool. I guess I went down his path, but I didn't do what he does. I mean, I haven't got those sort of cojones. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, upgrade airlines and stuff. Yeah. That's not my thing. But I do realize that they didn't work out. The end result didn't work out as mine did. And it's not that one was right and one was wrong. It's just that we were different. But then when I came to the United States and I started meeting people here and I started realizing, well, there's a different, what I call social mantra. There's a different upbringing, if you like, or what your parents tell you you should be or what government tells you you should be or what your pastor at your church tells you you should be. It's different in the States, but then we, as somebody from the outside, look upon this, you know, the greatest country in the world with the biggest economy and, and all of that. Yeah. I think, well, fair enough. It, it would be different because, you know, they get like epic results. <laughs> it makes sense. But then when you're on the ground and you acclimatize and you become an American and you start living in their shoes and with them and you start realizing, hang on, they're not doing so good. <laughs> and there's when you've worked inside of Hollywood, as I have, you understand what the Universal Studios lot version of life is like and how there's nothing behind that door. And that's kind of what I think people have been, that's a bill of goods that people have been sold. And I've always looked at it as somebody from the outside. I can always justify saying, well, I'm going to tell you as I see it, I'm going to be, a straight shooter and just tell you, you know, this is bullshit, right? <laughs> You're not going to, if you keep doing this, you'll get the same result with that old Einstein thing where if you do the same thing over and over yeah. again, was the definition of insanity. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, and this is what our schools teach kids and what the universities teach kids and what tax policy teaches kids, what government teaches kids. And, you know, you can bust balloons everywhere you go on every single one of those fronts. Everything is corrupt and poisoned. It's it's ineffective. Um, and at the end of the day, you look at your own individuality and your own goals in life and your family, and you realize, holy crap, dude, I'm not going to fall down that that rabbit hole and do what everybody else is doing. I don't want to be a part of the herd. Yeah, it's uh, that's the same type of mindset I had coming out of high school and I um, knew college was not for me. I had a couple of my friends that were going to college. 
But the majority of the people that I went to high school with weren't going anywhere and they weren't doing anything. They were going to continue to live with their parents and work some low paying job in the nearby area, which they were fine with, which was not cool for me. I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to make it, but I knew like it wasn't that and it wasn't that. And, you know, I, I moved 800 miles away and, and started racing motocross and suddenly, well, not start continued. And, you know, I grew up in an, like a, a really rural area where we didn't have much government oversight. Like we had two or three city cops, but that was about it. And, you know, I grew up, my mom was a, um, a, uh, paralegal for a criminal defense attorney. So we always had an outlook on like the government, the cops, like this is the enemy. They're going to destroy your life here. We have a million examples of it in this office that we could show you. So do not, you know, let these people shape how you think or, or how you act. But, you know, moving into Southern California and then later on in San Francisco, I saw how the other half grew up and it was a completely different way. Like kind of like you're describing where it was, I, I would discuss the way I grew up. I was free range. I was on a mountain bike or a, or a dirt bike or a BMX bike my entire childhood. And you, you tell these to the city people and they're just looking at you like you're crazy. And how could anybody allow their parents to raise children this way? And it's not, and it was a, it was a rude awakening to see that part of the world, you know, to find out that I own guns. They looked at you like you were insane. It was like, Whoa, Oh, Oh my goodness. You know, but this, this is how it used to be. I mean, I grew up in what Australians will call, uh, I was a free range kid. Yeah, I was too. You get your bicycle, you get your neighbors and you go out in the, in the, in the country or in the parks and you pretend you're in fighting in world war two, or you pretend you're, I don't know, it's cops and robbers or whatever it is, but you're, you know, you're a kid, you do that sort of thing and you don't care that you're out there for the whole day on your bike and your parents are like, where's he gone for the day? I don't know. He's out with his friends, whatever. Yep. And then you come home when the sun comes down and that's, that's your life. And what's wrong with that? To me, that's like organic, normal, natural. And yet that's not something, that's something that people are scared to allow their kids to do now. And, you know, like you, you're somebody who's looked at fear right in the face oh, yeah. because Right. Okay. It's it, it you you ride with it, right? It's like part of you. You dance with it. You mitigate it all the time. Um, we're the same because we did the same thing. We mitigate risk. I was in hospital for a week in ICU because a jellyfish bit me. <laughs> the guy in the bed next to me died, oh. and I'm I'm this kid. Yeah. And, you know, and this is normal. <laughs> This is what we do because we're biological entities and we have to learn to live in concert with every other biological entity. And yeah, if, if that thing's going to come after me, I want a gun too. (laughs) I'm sorry. I mean, come on, that's just normal, but there's nothing here that, I mean, why I don't understand the, the urban ways anymore in the States. I, I don't understand so many things. And what happened was that my, quest to try to find the answers to these things all it did was it opened up more questions because i'm because i'm coming from another country from a different land i didn't have this sort of i wasn't you know four years old at preschool with hand on heart pledging allegiance to any which is just 
weird, I'm sure, to an outsider. <laughs> well, it's what, why they call it public indoctrination camps, yeah. I guess. That's exactly what they would do if you were a Uyghur. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's insane, but it is our way of ideology and we identify ourselves as a nationalist in that particular country. But when you come from it as an, as an immigrant, it's like, well, I don't know who I am anymore, you know? <laughs> so you look at everything a little differently. And then what I do is I, I'm a, I'm a numbers guy. So mm -hmm. I look at things mathematically because to me, math doesn't lie and I, and I can see things. So I did some studies on what life was like, say back in 1980 and compared it to life in 20, in 2023 or say 2020 to make it easy uh, because I wanted to see progression. I wanted to see that are things getting better or are things getting worse? Now, the definition of better or worse is subjective, yeah. right? Because for the 1% out there who are making gazillions of dollars, I'm sure they're, they're yeah. doing fine and they don't care times about it. great. This. Right. Times <laughs> are great, right? But for the rest of us, uh, not so great. And you look at it and go, well, what's the result of that? And you start seeing, well, okay, only 27% of people at the age of 65 can afford to retire. That's, that's not right. And then the second thing is 78% um, of all people are living paycheck to paycheck. They can't pay their bills with the amount of money they've got. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and this is, just, we're just scraping the surface. So I went back to this, you know, 1980 to 2020 sort of analysis. And what I found was that average wage, if you do it in 2020 dollars, has only risen 17.5% over that, what's that, 40-year spread. 17.5%, right? Um, you can imagine what inflation's done. Oh, it's insane. But human productivity and the actual output that we have if we were working for somebody because of technology for the most part has increased 66%. So we are as workers more productive and more valuable to an employee, but we're not getting any money for it. And so what's happened is inflation of costs is increasing and it always will. And yet our income has not met that. So consequently you end up in this deficit situation. And that's why people have to have loads of credit card debt or they mm -hmm. have to have everybody working two jobs in the household to pay the bills. And, yeah. and you look at this and go, you can't sustain this, no. right? This is not working. Um, why is it like this? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but in, in my opinion, the main reason is that this, and this gets back to where we started the conversation, the fact that everybody took the blue pill at the age of yep. 18 and decided they were going to go to college or mm -hmm. whatever. And they start this relationship with the four letter word, the bank. And the second that they do that and they sell their future out for debt, for their student loans or for their first car or for a house or whatever it might be, they realize that they're making a punt where there are no really good indicators that would tell you that five years from now, when you've got to pay the car off or 10 years when the student loans got to be paid or 30 in the case of a mortgage, the world is not going to be any better than it is today. In fact, you are going to be worth less money. So the stupid people, I would, you know, I, I got to be real that go out there and they take this, this debt load on, they know the world's going to be worse by the time they have to pay it off. So they know that they're going to be, it's going to be real. It's going to suck to be them five years, 10 years from now. And consequently, where's your freedom gone? Well, I'll tell you where your freedom's gone. Freedom's gone in a slave relationship you have to your employer. 
And the employer is just as much in the same situation because they are enslaved to their own regulators and governance. They're the ones out there trying to make enough money where they can afford the lobbyists to get the legislators to write the bills that benefit them. Meanwhile, they're trying to, you know, deal with the competition, obsolescence and all the other normal capitalistic things. But those things they can probably handle. They've got a rigged game because they're in markets where maybe a monopoly exists and they're not allowed to compete or the opportunities aren't presented to them because of some backroom deal with some other country or worst case scenario, there's a, a willingness on behalf of everybody to globalize and send the work offshore or send the manufacturing offshore or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or to give it to a bunch of robots and AI to do the job because, you know, humans can't be trusted, right? Well, that's because you're projecting that because you can't be trusted because you suck because your employees don't make any money and they're all in squalor and yet you're still expecting to turn up at 7.30 in the morning and with five Starbucks under their belt and be uber productive. I mean, sorry, yep. <laughs> ain't going to work. Yep. And, and that's kind of where I stand right now. Yeah, I um I came up in the restaurant industry and it's, you know, a mess. That's hard. For employees, it's really tough. You're working a lot of hours. You're on your feet. You're using your brain and your back. Uh, And then for the owners, I mean, their margins are so tight. They're Mm -hmm. making just scratching the surface to get by. So like you said, we got to have you working 45 hours a week behind the bar. But also, we can't give you much overtime. So we need to give you breaks here and breaks here because the whole, the whole structure is just set up. And then you get something like, um, we're going to raise the minimum wage and your workers just get all excited. I remember seeing this coming in as, as a kid who didn't know anything, they go, we're going to raise the minimum wage. And I just got back behind the bar and I go, well, this isn't going to work. We're not going to be able to employ as many people. And the the people around me, oh, it's it's more money. You're good. And within weeks, it was no more overtime. Dishwashers off uh, on the weekdays. We're not running a busser on the weekdays anymore. So now you have to work even harder for the same amount of money. I mean, yeah. you get a dollar an hour extra, but in a restaurant, that's nothing, anyways. And yeah, yeah it's it's a mess. Yeah. My sort of journey through this was. I mean, I, I did well while I was in state, you know, in the States, I, I made a lot of money. I sold a lot of, made a lot of money on real estate, made a lot of money on cryptocurrency. I made a lot of money in the tech industry, but at the same time, I lost a lot because I went through the boom and bust cycles of the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust and yeah. then the real estate 2008 crisis. And, and so I kind of feel like I, I did really well when, when I was on the upside of the roller coaster, but when that sucker went down, I lost it all. And so at some point I said, I think I'm getting off the ride. Yeah. And that's uh, where I came. But I, I also started looking at where the money was going. And I started realizing that since say 2000 or so, uh, most of our manufacturing had gone to China. And then uh, with that, it had changed the way that the employment dynamic worked. Uh, factories were no longer factories anymore. They were more supply chain receiving, receiving docks. Um, because everything was being done over there. I I sort of felt like they're doing okay, probably at our expense, but at the same time, whatever, it's competition. I, I can deal with that. But then one day, 
um, we'd been away from Australia for about 10 years. Uh, we hadn't gone back. We didn't have a need to. And my my wife's uh, parents were getting older. My my parents had passed on, so I'm fine. But she had her parents there, and we needed to go back to see them. What we were doing was we were flying them over to the States for you know two, three months. They'd come live with us and then have a good time and send them back. But as they got older, that was less likely to be the case. So we started making trips back. And uh, we had this fictitious idea in our heads that we would go back to Australia and retire. That that would be yeah. easy, you know, because it's where we're To where you grew was. up, to the Australia that you grew up in. Right, right. And so that was our theory. Um, so in, I guess, about 2012 to 2013, we started making these trips back. and. What we discovered was a country that had sold its entire future and its soul out for globalization, yeah. uh, particularly in this case to China, and uh, that everything was unusual. Like you get off the plane in Sydney and all the signs as you were walking towards the immigration counter or even after you'd passed it and you were on your way to the hotel, all the signs, the billboards, everything was all Mandarin first, English second on everything and that was bizarre i thought what country have i landed in here you know yeah. this is weird so anyway um i eventually get to our home city our you know hometown uh which is one of these really beautifully designed uh sort of urban plans of the 1800s where there's a, a big parkland of a one mile surround around the city and then the skyscrapers and so on and what we had found was that inside that parkland about 75% of it was turned into a Chinatown and there was no city anymore. And that every the population had grown so, so much that the roads had never been built or the infrastructure had been upgraded. So everyone's like crammed together. And I'm like, this isn't working. And then the cost of everything was so expensive. Um, one of the things that was an experience that I talk about is uh, my wife's parents live in a country town. So we would eventually leave the city and drive out to their town. And it's down by the coast on the southern coast of the country. And um, uh, one of the things you do on a weekend is you go down to the local cray, cray fishermen. They, they, uh, they, it's lobster, basically, the lobster fishermen. And they'd come in on their boats and their trawlers and they'd just come into dock. And you could go to any of the fishermen. You could just buy lobster off the boat. Mm -hmm. um, so we'd do that. And it used to be, you know, 10 bucks, for a lobster or something like that. And, you know, the guy'd sell it to you. I remember I went down there to do that to a guy and I said, listen, uh, how's the catch? And he goes, oh, really good. Well, you know, I've got all this stuff. Um, so you sell me a lobster? And he goes, um, yeah, all right. I said, all right, how much? And he, you know, we just pick one at random. Um, 200 bucks. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, come on, dude. I've been to Boston, Maine. Yeah. I know what it's like to buy a lobster. Come on. 200 bucks, you're insane. He goes, that's what the Chinese will pay for him. Wow. Are you serious? And he goes, yeah, and the problem is actually by law, I can't sell them to you because yeah. um, you have this contract with the co-op to buy all of the the fish or the lobster and we have to sell it to them first and I can get in big trouble if I don't. And they're the ones that sell them to China and we make the money on that. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You can't, you're telling me that the local industry of the country can't even sell to the local public. Yeah. I mean, this is... My, and then, you seen it? My neighbor has a cattle ranch that he is losing 
he is trying to sell the land as industrial property. And his ranch hand who lives lives in the house on the ranch, this is like a 20-acre ranch. It's not huge, and it's kind of in the middle of what used to be open area. But um, his ranch hand is an animal cleaner on the side. He cleans elk and deer when people go hunting and shit like that. He can't sell me a cow if he wanted to, because if he gets busted, he would be in just unbelievable amounts of trouble. FDA, um, you know, whatever government agencies are looking over him. He says it's just not possible. And I'd love to buy meat from the guy. It's right. I I look at it every day. I'd love to buy those cows, but nope. Right now, the whole field has grown over because he inflation is killing him so much that he can't even afford to keep cattle on the land to yeah. keep it manicured at this point. Yeah, this is um, this is a state of state of transition. I think that so many of us are finding ourselves in uh, that the what I saw Australia to me was like the canary in the coal mine. It just represented an example of what happens when governance sells out. Uh, that corrupted politicians accept selling out the rights of mining rather than the product. Yeah. I looked at how, you know, West African nations fell into poverty as a result of doing things like that with these crazy world trade organization deals and started realizing that, you know, Ghana could be a very rich country just by selling cacao or coffee beans for that, but they're not allowed to enrich them into a, a product that has value. So they sell them for for quarters of pennies on the dollar to Nestle and Nestle make all the money, you know, turning beans into coffee. Uh, it, it's insane. Yeah. And the locals don't, you know, they don't win. So anyway, knowing that this happens every single time we'd leave Australia, my wife and I at the airport, we'd go through this same thing and we'd look at each other as we were getting on the plane and we're going, we can't come home. And that was hard to accept and it's hard it's easy for as i've always seen this as an american would see it for a foreign country you know you see all of these immigrants on the border and all these people from guatemala have been you know kicked out of the country because of whatever whatever reasons and there are the ones on the border saying we can't go home and i get that because i can't go home but difference i guess with me and maybe I'm in some ways entitled and lucky. And, uh, you know, if that's the case, sue me, but you know, that's how it is. Um, But at the end of the day, the difference with me is that that doesn't stop me trying to find a solution. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, there's two options. I stay in the States or we look for some other place. So we were looking at staying in the States for a while. And then as it happens um, sometime around about 2018 or so uh, I'm, I wake up, and I've got this massive pain in my shoulder. So, um, so what happened to me uh, in the mid '90s when I went back to Australia to look after my mum? I ended up in a massive car accident in the outback of Australia. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I was in the back seat of the car. The girl in the front seat and the passenger seat in front of me was killed. Um, my mate and who was driving it, he was almost killed, and I was in a coma for like guess about two weeks, something okay. like that. Anyway, I got out, I survived, but I lost, uh, my shoulder was completely destroyed. So they, this wonderful free government provided healthcare um, did the best they could do like a mash unit would to try to save my shoulder, which is horrible. 
And I've been living with this deformed shoulder for years, for decades. So I wake up in pain in the States 20 odd years later, uh, only to find out that um, I got a big problem in my shoulder. I need to get it fixed. And then I realized um, I've got no medical coverage for this in the States because it's a pre-existing condition and Uh, touch it. And then Australia says, well, you don't pay taxes here, buddy, anymore. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm, I, I, I left. Yeah, well, so did your opportunity for healthcare because you don't get any for free down here either. So I'm running around trying to work out what's going on with the shoulder. It calmed down to the point where I had it stable, um, but it wasn't good. Anyway, one thing led to another. My wife and I are in Mexico just on a vacation, and we're just bumbling around, visiting different cities, meeting people. It was, it was fun. And uh, I... I met this guy who, who was a doctor and he told me, you got to go to Guadalajara and get them to take a look at it. And it gives, gives him the name of an orth, orthopod there. So I go there, the orthopod sees me immediately. I mean, like, you know, gave eight x-rays was like 10 bucks. Or something. <laughs> it's, it's pathetically cheap. Yeah. Um, but the guy was like trained in Germany and, and Texas or something. Yeah. I mean, he was really good. And, uh, he he tells me, he looks at the x-rays and he goes, yeah, this thing's a mess, man. You're going to have to get this completely rebuilt and you need a total new shoulder. I'm like, okay, well, how much is that going to cost, Doc? And he pulls out his calculator and starts banging around with numbers and they're, they're big numbers, right? And he's, you know, he's saying like 500,000 or something. I'm like, come on, I'm going to do that. And then he goes, no, 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 that's pesos. <laughs> we we'll out 9,000 US dollars to get a wow. complete shoulder reconstruction done. So I said, sign me up, doc. So uh, he says, well, what I'm going to do just because you're going to have a get it done and you're here, I'm going to send it down the other end to an MRI and they'll get that done. That costs like 200 bucks. It's cheap. I come back with the MRI images and he puts it up on the wall and he looks at those and he goes, oh shit. I'm like, what do you mean? Oh shit. And he points to this thing on the picture and he goes, that's a tumor. He says, you've got a tumor in there. I'm like, oh, that's what was putting all the pressure on the shoulder. It was causing me all the pain. He goes, I don't think it's, I think it's benign. I don't think it's, you know, going to be a problem. I can cut it out, but I'm scheduling you right now for surgery. So I did, I got it done. Best medical experience I've ever had in my life. Cost me nine grand, like he quoted. And I got a new shoulder out of it. And and that, when I realized, oh shit, this is how you get medicine. You don't get the bloody thing done in the States where, you know, you've got to wait three months to see a specialist and there's 15 gatekeepers and God forbid your insurance company doesn't pay the bill because you you can't afford half a million dollars to be on the hook for that, you know, hip replacement or whatever the hell it is. Come down here. So once we started dealing with that, we started to get to know the place really well. And then I put two and two together and said, you know, I, I guess history would repeat, right? Like, Australia sold itself out to China and it destroyed itself in the process. What's going on in the States right now? And I could see, you know, you're going to Walmart and everything's made in China and yeah. everything you buy is made in China. Um, it's probably not going to end well there either. But I have an opportunity right now because I know that at some point they're not going to put up with ships crossing the Pacific. They want locally near-shored manufacture. And if the factories aren't here they'll do what gm did and they'll go down to mexico and they'll get all this stuff made so i went back down there and i started researching you know economics and and capitalism in mexico and found this ascent this country on the on a climber on a terror actually doing so well and started realizing how how much further money went 
and what quality of life was really like and that everything that they were telling you about you know mexico was bullshit like this and i i don't it's it's hard for me to say this because on one hand i want to i want to be conservative i want to be you know cautious i don't want to tell people i've got to plug my computer in i can still hear you i'm sorry that's all right um you know i i don't want to tell people go to mexico you'll be safe and then somebody goes down there and has some you know god awful thing happen to them but at the same time i realized that most of the bullshit which uh the media uh perpetuating is complete lies and it's it's horrible it, it, the the level of lies they do to people to keep them jailed into their you know their their cell if you like or their their locale because they're too scared to want to go down south where they've got beautiful beaches and everything's oh, yeah. and you know and beer's 50 cents and you know it's like yeah I mean, this is a cool place they don't want you going down there because then you're no longer a tax slave to the government yep. and so you know they'll do everything they can to spread lies and innuendo to force people not to do it and here i am I'm like, well, I'm an immigrant to the States. So I can be an immigrant to Mexico. Oh, yeah. And I so love Mexico. Yeah. And so we bought a freaking acre of land with a bullfighting ring on it. Oh, that's awesome. Bulldoze the bullfighting ring and a building, you know, the, a beautiful house, a mansion almost on a compound um, that we can afford to do that I could never do in Arizona where I live. Um, and I could never do in Australia. And it was like, Okay, maybe the answer here is go where the money is. Go where you're treated best. And don't be afraid to. Don't be, you know, just just give it a shot. Because for me, I'm always an immigrant because I'm not back in Australia and I can't go back there. So I'm floating around the world trying to find where I want to be next. And right now I'm in Mexico. Yeah, I've always said Mexico's a possibility for me. I've been there. I, I lived on in Southern California. So we used to go down Rosarita Beach all the time. Oh, I yeah. loved it down there. There was this guy, I get tacos from him every time you go, carne asada tacos. You go, oh, see, si, gato, gato. Yeah. <laughs> we go, no, no, no. Carne asada. No, see, si, gato is good. <laughs> All right, whatever. And is he joking? Who really knows? But, you know, yeah. I've, uh, I, I always have wanted to own a motocross track. And, you know, I think I, I did well moving to Idaho by accident. After I got hurt, I, um, I was bartending. And I was doing really well bartending in San Francisco, making six figures. And I decided this isn't going to last. I'm not going to be good looking forever. I'm not going to be moving around all that great forever. And there's no real security in this job. So I got into line work. And when I got hurt, I was only making like 15, 18 bucks an hour or something like that. So living in Northern California, it was all of a sudden it was like, well, this is no longer an option. Like I can't. I was looking at buying a house before I got hurt. Now it's like not even a possibility. What am I going to do? Rent in San Francisco? I can't do that. So now I, what am I going to rent a house in my hometown where I should be owning a place? It's, you know, it's a terrible feeling to be like pushed out of your own home. And then I yeah. moved here to Idaho and bought a house for cheap and COVID happened and real estate went up 60%. And now I'm, Got guys who were, you know, I've got a 20 year old kid who's an apprentice electrician living in a room in my house. So I've done, you know, the same thing to the kids here that happened to me. It's, it's a sad situation that they put us all in. 
Yeah, it is. It's not getting any better though. No, it's not. People have started getting real about it. I mean, I've got a 25 year old daughter and she's still living at home. And, and I look at this, I I was sitting down with my accountant having lunch with him a few weeks back and uh, he's got a kid the same age. And we were both saying, you know, our kids, they're not like we were, we did better than our parents. Um, These kids are doing way worse than we did because we could move out when we were 16, 18 or whatever. There's no hope in hell that they can do that. My mom Um, bought a house when she was 17. There you go. Her and my dad bought a house and, you know, it was, I think it was like 67, it was like $67,000 and it was in the interest rates were bloody high too. Yeah. It was in the (laughs) eighties. Yeah. Right. There you go. Yeah, They paid a lot. (laughs) Right. But they still were able to do it. Yeah. That's remarkable. I mean, but that's, you see, that is prosperity, but it's not what we got now. And that's why I got out. And what I found, you know, there's a lot of friends of mine who are, um, you know, born Americans, they're libertarian or they're um, anarcho-capitalists or they're voluntarists or they're, they're people who understand that they can't rely on their governments anymore. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing everything they possibly can to be decentralized, to be self-sufficient. Um, but they're building protocol to be able to work with everybody else around them, which is how you do it. Um, and I And I commend them for doing that. But I realize so many times that I listen to the arguments they have that are very much more ideological about things that may have some effect on their life, but they're not the elephant in the room kind of things, right? Um, like, you know, okay, freedom of speech, I'm, I'm all in for that. That's cool. I have no trouble with it. Um, but they've never been to, say, the Czech Republic and seeing what it was like during the time of communism, where there was freedom of nothing. Yeah. Um, and, and at the end of the day, those sort of issues always have to take a back seat when you can't pay the rent this month. <laughs> and I find that those issues are fixable of all things. The capitalistic issues can be fixed because by breaking free of this bullshit social mantra that we've been had pummeled into our heads since our childhood since school and being willing to say this ain't right this doesn't work then all of a sudden things start to work for you because you take control of the situation yourself rather than relying on a third party that's not got your best interests at heart um that would solve the problem but i i i find that so many times i get into these esoteric arguments about things that are probably worth a discussion, but at the end of the day, I'm kind of looking at my watch going, I'm going to go make some money here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's, it's kind of like it. how things ought to be versus how things are. And how do you work with the way things are compared yeah. to making them the way they ought to be, which are both yeah. important. Like you, you have to tell people how things ought to be in order to get there. But at the same time, like you said, yeah, I need to pay the rent this month, you know? Right. And, right. you know, for someone like me, I've, I've just been chewed up and spit out by this medical uh, whole deal. And, man, it's it, it's a real nightmare the way – I'm lucky I'm a pain in the ass. Otherwise, I would have ended up with a bad surgery, a cheap hook, and a kick in the ass. And instead, I got an expensive hand and a college degree, which is not going to be worth anything. But I made – I got paid through – the degree process, which is a good thing. So 
you know, I could complain and say, well, this is how the system ought to be. And this is how I ought to have been treated. And I'm going to take a principled stand and do things this way to, you know, show people the way things should be. Uh, but then I also may have been selling my house at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the thing is remarkable and we don't celebrate heroes enough, um, all over the world, but people like you who are dealing with a disability of, of some form, however it came upon you. And I know this cause I used to have a crappy yeah. shoulder, but, um, anybody who's living in some form of disability and using that as a crux or as an excuse as to why they can't get off the couch and go and do something or why they can't learn some new trade or discover what their, their true passion is in life uh, are doing themselves a disservice and never will be in a situation of prosperity. It just won't be the case. But somebody who says, okay, look, maybe I don't have two working arms, but I've got a voice, I've got a message, I got the technical skills to put something together. I'll do a podcast. Yep. That's it. That's heroic in my opinion. Because oh, I appreciate that. I thought it know, was the logical conclusion to how can I bartend without going into the bar? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, maybe you could, I mean, you could use the arm as a gimmick possibly. Yeah. And, and, you know, but at this the is the time, only time I wear it. Literally. It doesn't even work right now, but I wear it uh, on the podcast because you know, it's here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I you have the it. most of what you got, right? Yeah, but, exactly. But, but just doing something rather than assuming somebody else is going to, you know, bail you out or whatever. I mean, look, there are people out there that can't do things. And I get that. And I've, my heart goes out to them. I'm very empathetic with people who have disabilities that are real legit and they cannot bypass them and they get in the way of everything. Um, and yeah, those people need us to give them a hand and that's fine. But there are so many people who want to use disability as what we would call the doll in Australia. And that is just a way to get free government money so that oh, they yeah. can sit in the Xbox all day. That ain't cutting it with me. Yeah. And it's amazing how you, you, I know people in this country who are on disability because they can't sleep or, you know, they've got diabetes. So perfect, perfectly healthy people. And to, for someone like me, the way they treat me, it's just like, oh no, you're, you're completely fine, which, you know, whatever you, you, you do the way you do. But the way that it's set up is, um, I think it's pretty, pretty nasty that there's so many loopholes for people who have knowledge of working the system and know what they're doing and have been planning on working it for a while compared to somebody who actually gets hurt. And what they try and do to you to just peel you off and throw you off as quick as they possibly can, which mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty insidious when, when you witness it firsthand. <laughs> yeah. It, there's a, a common thing I, I always heard as a, certainly when I was doing my civics before I got my citizenship in the States, um, the, we are a country of laws and that, uh, that was a, a very powerful thing to say and a very, very obvious thing to be a total lie. Um, for example, uh, if I drive down the freeway, down the 10 freeway in Arizona, and I get pulled over for speeding, and that's usually at the discretion of the police officer, um, and I, he pulls me over, it's gonna cost me about 300 bucks for a ticket. It's gonna cost me a day of traffic school. 
so I don't avoid additional ongoing insurance costs and and ancillary costs associated with the whole thing. Um, if I'm driving down the road here in Mexico and some corrupt cop sees me and says, I'm going to pull you over and try and, you know, extort you for money, because that's how it works. You know, they, they don't write you a ticket. They just say, here, you got to pay me a thousand pesos or whatever. Um, I'll pay the guy a thousand pesos quite happily, because when I convert that to US currency, it's worth about 60 bucks, 50, 60 bucks versus me having to deal with $300 in a full day of my life doing traffic school. So I look at this and go, nation of laws, hmm, who's corrupt here, right? And that, and then if you take that little example and you propagate it into larger scale mm -hmm. conversations, it might be uh, building permits. It might be agricultural permits like your buddy, right? It could be banking and monetary licenses, the right to exchange money. Um, this this shit is make it up as you go along and just try and gouge the people for as as much extortion money you can get out of them as possible. At least down here in Central America, they're open about it. You know, yeah. you know, you want to get a elect. I had a, a guy had to move an electric pole on the side of our property so we could put a gate in. Um, yeah, it cost me like eighteen hundred bucks to pay off the electrical guy to move it, mm. or it'd be waiting, you know, two years for it. That's nothing compared to the cost of this build. And I look at it and go, yeah, pay him. That's fine. If the power company came to me and said, yeah, we can do that, but it's going to cost you like twenty grand, which they do. Oh yeah, I'd be pissed off about that, but I'll just pay the guy so he just gets in his truck and does it for me on the spot. Yeah, this is. I, I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm much more peer to peer with everything. It's like if that's what it's going to cost, and you tell me that, and you get it done here, just just do it, right? I don't care anymore. Just do it, but don't don't blow smoke up my ass and tell me that I'm living in land of the free, and that you know I'm nation of laws, and you do this shit to me. No, <laughs> so, you know we're we're not that damn stupid here, you know. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, man. So one of the things I was listening to you talk about earlier today was fed now. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's going to be the ultimate in constraints, right? Do you think that um, you'll be f like, I don't know, free from that and in, in down in Mexico or, or is that oh, going to affect Mexico as well? No, Mexico is a cash economy here. Yeah. Nobody wants to do anything other than cash because they don't trust their government. And they never will. And that's enough of a, a, a constriction upon the government to stop them doing stupid things. So we have a really decent balance here between governance and, and the people. But ultimately, it's a bottom-up mentality. So what's good for the people going up is how, how things work, whereas in the States, in Washington, it's a top-down. Yeah. What's good for Washington gets pushed down to the people. And that that difference in mentality is why you can't roll out these, you know, ridiculous um, Orwellian surveillance tools onto the people because here they, they see right through that stuff. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't think that's going to be a problem here. What I see as a problem is that it's a wolf in sheep's clothing being sold to us by every corrupt banker out there who thinks they can make a buck out of it. And every vendor who says, I'm already paying 3% for Visa and MasterCard, maybe these guys will do it for 1%. Oh, that's mm -hmm. better. Let's take that on. No. It's not good for the people. It's not good for anybody. They want total control of money. It's as simple as that because yeah. you're in debt up to your eyeballs. You've got $31 trillion of mismanagement. You haven't had a surplus for 20 years. So there's no way in hell this is ever going to change. 
And eventually, as you devalue the currency and you push inflation up and up and up and up, all you want to try and do is find a way where you can use monetary transactions as a surveillance tool. And, you know, if they get away, they will get away with that. And that will just lead straight to the CBDC, the central bank digital currency. And now every single thing that we do, all of our, even down to our thoughts, will be completely controlled in a very Orwellian state. Orwell wasn't fiction. Orwell was a business model. It was Mm -hmm. like an operating system guide for government. And it's disgusting it's turned into that, but it is what it is. Yeah, man. Every time I read Orwell, I can't believe that it's been around this long and we've still ended up in the position that we're in. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is light on the horizon, but it's, again, the willingness of somebody to want to travel to be able to see it. Um, I am very bullish on countries like El Salvador. I've seen remarkable things going on down there with their adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender. But I don't, I don't think, yeah, it's very exciting, but I think there's more to it than that because just a couple of weeks ago, they stuck their middle finger up to the IMF when they came calling for $800 million of bonds and oh, saying, really? I guess you just I want us to that. roll that over to the next loan like we've always done before, uh-huh. right? And Bukele just goes to them, no, screw you, here's your money, get out of here. He literally <laughs> raised the money with a bond issuance and just paid the IMF off and now he's got no debt to the IMF. And every other country in Central America is looking at him going, we want that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's he's openly saying, uh, he and his, his administration are openly saying that we want to be the Singapore of Central America. And I'm looking at that going, oh, there's some there's some opportunity right there. Yeah. So I, I'm, thankfully, I'll be down in El Salvador in November um, at a conference doing a speech down there. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. But what he's done in forms of Latin America is he has um, shown the rest of Latin America that the the bullshit that the CIA have been doing for the last 50 years by enslaving governance and, and assassinating leaders that didn't go along with the party line that allowed the US to win every UN vote that was ever there, um, that Central America and South America won't stand for it. Because with him falling to Bitcoin as legal tender, if that I think, you know, everyone's looking at it carefully, making sure that it's working, but it is working. His um, murder rate is down to eight per 100,000 now, which is insane considering it's like about 135 in St. Louis. And you heard so, people up here screaming, he's he's suspending the constitution. Oh my God. Hand, right. You know, <laughs> wringing their hands. It's like, come on, and shut like up. We're not buying this crap. Right, and it's like a 94% approval rating. Yeah. I mean, the guy's, the guy's legendary yeah. down there. Well, every other country in South America that's been dealing with the same stuff is now looking at it going, maybe we'll do the same thing. So we expect any day now Paraguay will do the same thing, then probably Uruguay. And then when Argentina does it, because their history with hyperinflation is legendary, I think at that point, all of a sudden, it's going to be on like Donkey Kong. I mean, this is when nations will go, we're getting out of that U.S. dollar crap and we're getting into this. <laughs> yeah. And this is and something Max Kaiser has been saying for a long time, that it's going to be one of these smaller countries that we're not expecting that is yep. going to take this and make it run like wildfire. Yeah. Exactly and I can say as somebody effectively living in Mexico and living in that world now, um, yeah, it's a, it's beautiful. My stress levels are way lower here. My productivity is is maximized. There are no distractions going on in my world because I can focus on things. 
I'm not feeling jaded as much. Um, I understand why I got here and why this country has been so good to me about that um, and what I left. But at the same time, I'm I'm not looking back in anger on it, but I'm saying that this ain't so bad, you know. This is why the, the net, what, again, what they don't tell you is that the, the net migration um, of Mexicans going into the US has been lower than US going into Mexico since 2014, continuously. Really? There are many, many more Americans moving to Mexico than Mexicans moving to America. And that includes all those illegal border jumpers. They're not Mexicans. They're usually yeah, they're coming from yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're not. Um, but the Mexicans have got it going pretty well right now because their minimum wage is going up. There are big factories everywhere. Education is is available and very, very affordable for the locals. And uh it it's just really well set up. And I think maybe the border regions have got their challenges uh with you know domain control that's coming from the cartels, but come down further into the country and that's no longer a fact uh so where we are is is wonderful it's just just safe and and beautiful and the weather's great i mean i can't complain yeah i was uh, a little while ago i i was talking my dream would be to own a motocross track and oh, you, do that here. you know that's what i was thinking as you were talking it's like man here in idaho you know we're we're going to be one of the last states that enjoys freedom however you want to classify what we have right now but we're going to have that for longer than a lot of states in this area we should be getting freer here in idaho greater idaho movement is getting bigger and bigger i think there's 12 of the western or eastern counties in oregon have all signed on to come over to idaho the only thing holding this really holding this up is boise boise doesn't want it you know, it's a it's a liberal city. They want to get more liberal and they want more power of the state, not less. So right. that's a, you know, because I, I got lucky moving here. It's just it happened the way it did. But how much I sure would love to give get it down to Mexico and open well, up a motocross track. For a motocross track. What do you what do you think? You know? Oh, here it would be insane because you would have to have you're talking 10, 20 acres of land, massive okay. insurance. um, you know, your fuel bill is going to be insane because you're going to have to be running heavy equipment all the time. Mm-hmm. So you're you're talking a lot of money. Yeah. So if you did that down in, say, I don't know, Jalisco, Guanajuato, even Carretero State, um, and you went outside of a, of, a, of a town like and just bought land, you could probably do it for... Well, I don't know what the build cost would be, obviously, but the land, basic land, I would say 40 to 50K US. Yeah, that's insane. For the whole lot. Uh, I've got a buddy of mine from New Zealand who got this stupid idea that he was going to build a community based on a some Maori tradition of uh, shared, like a shared community center. And, and he explained it to me. And I said, you're talking about like a indigenous Native American uh, chapter house kind of thing where you've got like this central building and everyone lives around like that. And he goes, yeah, it's kind of like that. Apparently the Maoris did that down in the South Pacific too. So he wanted to adopt that. So he went and did similar thing. He went and bought, you know, 20 acres of land to build this community. This guy isn't full of money. I mean, he works for a living. He's not, you know, living on some trust fund kid thing. He's, yeah. you know, just a regular guy, but he knows how to build. So, um, 
he built the land and he's already built most of it and people are starting to buy allotments for their yeah, that's interesting because my idea has yeah. been i've been telling my my family and my close friends is we need to get together and buy like 40 50 60 acres in wyoming was was my thought because wyoming's probably going to be the freest longest in this mm -hmm. country and we just all build and we have room for our kids to build and our grandkids to build and we right. have a community school where we do rotation where you know different people can teach different you know we can have apprenticeships amongst yeah. ourselves and you know I mean, maybe look, mexico's the place to do it <laughs> it's 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 an option for you i just say look can, don't necessarily i'm not trying to sell it to you oh no so no it's this is this is great i love it. this it's, it's an option to do that um I it's think that's a great option, like moving forward for people is to build their own communities. And if Absolutely. there's places that are going to allow us to do it, one of my other major things is like energy security, because I was an energy guy. Like, I do not want to be under the thumb of some asshole who's going to turn the power mm -hmm. off because generation is costing much at this point in time or maybe well we can't run too many gas plants right now we need to be running more like i don't want to deal with that i would like my own you know ultimately i think we should all have small nuclear reactors you know my homeowners well, association should have a small nuclear reactor yeah. <laughs> you know like that but i mean even even other types of of community power like your own hydro system you know well, we have, get out uh, from under the thumb of these people Right. So we have dual solar on our property. Oh, that's so, perfect. Yeah. You're in Mexico. Yeah. But what we have a, I'm, I'm building a very large recording studio to get back to my musical roots. Oh, and cool. I've got a very large home as well. And both of them have their own solar system, like their own uh, generation panels, their own batteries, their own uh, everything. It's all isolated, but then they have failover to each other. So if we're not working in the studio and the batteries are good, but the house is running an AC unit and we need more power, we can fail over and pull power from the studio and vice versa. The reason for doing that, it's got nothing to do with Greta Thunberg and all the other BS. It's all got to do with money. Yeah. Because the way that the Mexican system works is that because they have 130 people and a very large number of them are living in abject poverty, they're in very low income levels. The way that the government works here is that if you consume a certain threshold of power, they charge you like 10 times. Oh, uh, you know, yeah, it's a progressive power. scale. Exactly. Because then they re they use that to fund the lower end people who use hardly any power. Yeah, it's like so carbon credits in a way. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But then there's an easy way to hack it, and that is get off the grid. So yeah. what we did, we said, we'll, we'll tie, but we're not going to send power back or draw power from We'll just tie so that we look like we're, you know, happy citizens, but really we're completely independent of that. Um, and we're also independent of water. We've got 60,000 liters of underground water catchment. So when the rain comes, we have water and we use that all year round. And we're also uh, drilling a well. So we'll use that for irrigation for the property and if we want to grow food and so on. So we are completely independent. The only thing I'm tethered to is uh, data. So we've got Telmex, you know, I've got them to yeah. bring fiber to the property. Um, and it's not so bad. Gigabit fiber, $33 a month is what I paid for that. Wow. For one gigabit. And at some point <laughs> you're going to be able to use Skylink or whatever. 
I've done Starlink in other places before, but that's way, way more expensive. Yeah. You'd be paying over a hundred bucks and you'd be getting a substandard, maybe about a fifth of that level of speed. But Telmex is a really advanced uh, data provider here. And uh, they've so far they've never gone down on me, which is remarkable. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the infrastructure stuff, um, but I'm doing it all myself, you know, which is, because, you know, that's which what is, I like. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I and I think that's what we all need to be going to. I've been doing everything I can to make my life sustainable to where I don't like have to be dependent on an employer. I don't want to, you know, show up an hour late to a job because I didn't sleep well or, you know, my hand or what, you know, any of this crap. So I've done everything I can to be sustainable. So I've got I just built a new room in my house, so I'm renting three rooms out in my house now. I've got income coming in, you know. Nice. Nice. We're we're Bitcoiners over here on the Too Hard for the Radio podcast, but we relate to the game. So a couple more a couple more cycles, and I'll and I'll be down no, where that, you're at. It, it's really good. <laughs> and look what you're doing. You know, just stay with it. You'll be fine. Yeah. Look, the people who are not doing that, I'm very scared for them, uh, particularly because. As I said before, people are signing up for debt and they're selling their future out. And we know the future is going to be worse than the present. Well, you know, I'd like to think it wasn't, but it is. Um, and then they don't see what's coming when it comes to things like artificial intelligence. And the if they understand the greed motive of most corporate uh, profiteers out there and the shareholders and all that, um, at the end of the day, they'll understand that the rich don't have jobs. And anybody out there that does have a job is further tethered to a very, very uh, unstable footing because they will get fired by a bot or, you know, the, their job, their value as an independent person, independent creator or thinker is going to be constantly uh, scrutinized by their customers against what a computer can do. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of sad, but at the same time, I think that the opportunity for a renaissance in hum humanity and particularly in things like art, creativity, uh, where we are better than the, you know, sterile uh, artificial alternatives just means that those that have true talent will rise to the top. Um, but at the same token, people who have been living on this false pretense about what value really is, what their lives, uh, what their, their purpose in their job you're working for customer service for American Express, you probably won't be next year because they're going to replace you with a script. Um, and that's just how it is. And we just have to suck it up. And will there be a job that you'll migrate to? Probably not because every other job like that out there would have been gone the same way because they're all competing for the same customer. So every bank will do the same thing and every utility company will do the same thing. And every eventually, I mean, what's going to be left is human to human services. And that's where I think that your point about local community um, and supporting your neighbors and, and, you know, keeping things local, that's going to win. That's, that is sustainable. But the second you're tethered to anything that has a profit motive, particularly when it's controlled by corporation or government, you are going to be a victim to that period. There's no way out. They don't want you as labor. You're a liability, not an asset. They want a computer data center to replace the factory. And, you know, why not? They make more money doing that. Um, and we just have to get real about it and realize that it's time for us to start to get real about who we are as a, as a species and, and who we are to each other. 
and how we can together solve these problems, but we won't do it following these same stupid social mantras they taught to us at childhood. Yeah. I, uh, I was, uh, I had a, a heated debate with somebody on a credit card company phone call the other day, and I ended the phone call with, I hope you get replaced by artificial intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. Yeah, you will be correct in that. That would be a good future punt. I would have put money on it. <laughs> right. Miles, it was a pleasure having you. We'll get out of here on that. Everybody, go out and listen to Miles' podcast. It's a great one. Have a good night. Thank you.